Welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and in this episode, we spoke about all things data visualization with Molly Pettit. Molly is the events director of Data Visualization Society and the lead behind Outlier Conference. She previously worked as a senior data visualization engineer at Netflix, as well as a data visualization contractor, a D3.js instructor with Northwestern University and Metis, and as a data scientist with Datascope Analytics. She talks to us about her circuitous career path from studying mathematics and geology to data engineering and design, and most recently, moving into developer relations. We also heard about how she uses human-centered design to guide her work in data visualization. And finally, we talked about this week's upcoming Outlier Conference happening the 4th and 5th of February, 2022. Now let's take a listen to our conversation with Molly Pettit. Molly Pettit. Welcome to Conversations with Data. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, thanks so much for coming on. Now, you have many titles. You know, you're a data educator, data scientist, human-centered designer, the list goes on. So tell us about your career path and how you found yourself in the data world. Yeah, so I have a I have a very circuitous career path. I my uh, bachelor's degrees are in mathematics and geology, uh, and a master's degree in geology. And then I worked in geology for a little bit. Um, but while I was working in geology, I although I loved learning about the subject, I just thought it was super interesting. I I realized the career just wasn't what I wanted, um, and I decided to kind of lean into my mathematics background. And I did a data science boot camp and transitioned into data science. Um, so at that point, I uh, moved to Chicago uh, because I'd gotten a job at Datascope Analytics. And uh, I worked there for, I think, just under two years. And one of the things I'll note about Datascope is that um, that's where my kind of love for human-centered design really started. They were super big on pulling various design thinking exercises into really keeping humans at the center of decisions and you know making sure uh, we were ideating and thinking outside of the box and not just defaulting to kind of the most obvious or first solution that came to mind. Um, so that's something I really appreciated about working there. And uh, I learned a lot, which I think helped both with work, but also with like various community initiatives I have either launched or worked on and also in iterating on my own career path and life. Pretty quickly into like working as a data scientist, I got really into data visualization and I started learning JavaScript and I started learning D3. Right around here was my first venture into like the visualization community. I went to like D3 Unconf in 2017, met a lot of amazing people that ended up becoming like friends and colleagues. And um, I eventually left Datascope in order to focus on data visualization. And while I was working as a freelancer, I was working from home. and. I wasn't meeting other data viz people. And I knew that there were other data viz practitioners in Chicago, but I just didn't know where to find them or how to meet them. And so this is when I started the data visualization community group. Um, and I even called on help from people I met at D3 Unconf who'd organized that, uh, Ian Johnson. Uh, and um, 
you know, got some insights on like starting a group. So we would host about two to four events a month. And I really started to like meet more folks in the database space. It was great. So within about a year uh, after that, uh, still working as a freelancer, I also co-founded the Data Visualization Society along with Amy Cecil and Elijah Meeks. Uh, this is the org for which I now serve as events director. Uh, in 2009, I left the freelance life and I started at Netflix at a, as a senior data visualization engineer where I worked on data viz heavy web apps for internal decision-making purposes. And in 2021, we launched the first edition of Outlier Conference through the Data Visualization Society. And this is also around the same time that I started a new role as data visualization developer at Observable, where I later transitioned to become the developer relations manager. And that actually brings me to like, an interesting point, which is, I don't think I even really knew that developer relations was a thing like a couple years ago. Um, or maybe I'd heard it, but I didn't know really what it was. But as soon as I realized it was like a career option, it was one of those light bulb moments of like, wait a second, there's a thing that combines like development skills with community building. Why am I not doing that? Like, it just seemed like an obvious fit. So that's why talking about these like community experiences and like community building uh, feels like it's part of my career trajectory. Marvelous. Now you mentioned human-centered design and your first job, that was kind of where you were introduced to this process and thinking. And I wonder what's your approach for designing visualizations, particularly data visualizations when it comes to human-centered design? Um, and what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so uh, human-centered design is a really great phrase because it's really kind of getting, it's telling you exactly what it is. It's designing with like the humans, uh, the viewers, the users, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them at the center of the thinking. Um, so it's rooted in like empathy and understanding the needs of who you're designing for and seeking to understand not only what people say and do, but also like, how they think and feel. Now we can try to do our best to anticipate uh, and make guesses about what people want. I think we all do this naturally. We try to fill in these gaps and we make these assumptions and you might get some things right, but you will likely get plenty of things wrong if that's the only way you go about things, if you're just making assumptions and then building. So this is where ideation, like prototyping and iteration comes in. So ideating on the ways that you accomplish a goal, uh, you can also flesh this out uh, with uh, user interviews and observations. And then from there, you choose a direction. You build a lo-fi version of something. You put it in front of someone and see how they use it and what they get from it. And I think it's also often important, too, in those cases, like not to give them hints or clues. Just ask them, think out loud and tell me what you see or what you notice and just watch how they interact with it. Uh, and it can be really vital in like understanding if you're going in the right direction, if you can create something that's confusing or not intuitive, but it can also tell you things that you've done like right. Yeah, so that's kind of like a general thing. And, and one other thing I'd add to that actually is that I think it's really common for people to fall into this trap of, well, if people don't understand what I've done, or don't know how to use what I've created, then it's their fault. We just need to educate them better on how to do it right or how to read it right. And like, I think there's sometimes, sometimes where maybe that's partially true in that you're, you've created a new visualization that no one has used before and you need to tell people how to use it. 
but even if you do that, like it's still important to think about like human nature and human instinct and what humans instinctively do and to like get feedback in order to make sure that you're reaching the goals you think you are with what you're making. The first thing you're trying to do when you're making something is you want to know what you're trying to accomplish. And so sometimes it's just something that you personally want to accomplish, but often it's something that someone else that you're working for or someone who has hired you wants to accomplish. And it's it was really common when I was freelancing for someone to come to me with like a super specific idea of what they wanted built. And the, the thing was, this wasn't always maybe the best way to reach their goal. It's like this very natural approach to kind of have an idea and push forward that on that idea without giving yourself just like the chance to think about how else you might do something. Um, so whenever I'd be approached by a client with like a very specific way that they wanted something, would often ask just like a ton of why questions. Um, you know, like, why do you want this feature? Uh, what are you trying to accomplish with this output? Who is this for? Uh, why this, why that? Um, and sometimes it takes a lot of why questions to get to like the very root of like, what are they trying to accomplish and what are their goals? Uh, so it, it can feel really repetitive, but it's really important to get to that you know, the root of it. Um, because once you truly understand like the motivations and the goals uh, of a visualization, then the next step is ideation uh, and coming up, you know, you can come up with a good prompt question and take a moment to brainstorm, like how might we blink? How might we reach this goal? So I find that brainstorms and ideations are best done with other people. Uh, this could be colleagues, it could be users, uh, it could be a client. Community. <laughs> yeah, community. I find involving the users that are going to be using the tools best, but unfortunately I found that not all the time would I be able to have access to, to users, uh, but that is like the ideal. And there were some times where unfortunately I just kind of had to brainstorm alone, um, which is still better than not doing it, but it's definitely better with more brains. Uh, I also think it's really important to have like brainstorming rules to keep things in like an effective direction. So like IDEO has some really great brainstorming rules. And they're all about kind of like deferring judgment, encouraging wild ideas, um, you know, be visual, go for quantity, quantity over quality. If you have an idea and you're like, eh, this is kind of a meh idea, put it down anyway, because it might inspire someone else to have an idea that's amazing, but, but that started from that, right? So next I would kind of set aside like, I don't know, a certain amount of time uh, to just sketch out every single possibility I could think of, especially when it's visualization. Sometimes it's, it's more about like, if it's not viz, like often it would just be a bunch of like words on post-it notes, like questions and, and whatever. But with visualization, often I do like a bunch of sketching. I'd also write down every question that I could think of along the way, um, especially if I was building something for somebody else and I needed more clarification on motivations. Um, and then from there, either I, uh, would choose a path forward or I would share the, the things with the clients and, and, and choose a path forward from there. And at this point, like, it's nice because you've given yourself a chance to really think about what your options are. And uh, maybe you'll go with your first thought anyway, but most of the time you probably won't. And then after you choose a direction, it's best not to build the entire thing in a back vacuum. So, you know, share your creation often, make sure it's reaching its goals. Um, and is being understood in the way that you're striving for. So I know it can be scary to show work to people when it's quote unquote 
ugly. Uh, however, sharing things uh, when they're a work in progress, even when they're ugly, uh, it'll help catch issues early and maybe even lead you to pivot slightly and it'll save you time in the long run. Um, and so often what I'll do is like, I'll even just preempt like, here's an ugly version, early version of this thing. Um, because then you don't have to worry so much about people judging it as like later on. But I think that's really important. And I wonder like, how do you feel data visualization has evolved since you began your career? Yeah, that's a good question. I got into data in like 2017, which feels really recent still to me but I guess it's been five years. Uh, <laughs> and also so much has happened, right? With COVID and so many audiences have become much more aware of, of numbers and they're absorbing this daily now and more newsrooms are investing in data journalism and data visualization. So maybe things have sped up almost, it's like a 10 years, even though it's only five. I mean, this was always a thing to be wary of, but COVID really brought it out, which is, is people really talking about accidentally misrepresenting with data and accidentally misleading, which is like super easy to do uncon like without meaning to, you know, this isn't, this isn't like me trying to blame people like, oh, you were trying to make people think this or whatever. Most of the time it's like accidental. And so I think there was a lot of really good stuff that came out about like how to avoid doing that. Um, and like Amanda McCulloch, who you had on the show, I think a while back uh, did some really great articles around that. Um, and then another thing I've noticed is that there's, and, and this is certainly always maybe been a thing, um, that's been around, but I've noticed more and more of it, which is less traditional representations of, of visualization, uh, just being more prevalent things like physical representations or data sonification, and also just like an increasing focus on ways to present data in ways that are more accessible uh, which is fantastic, obviously. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, how does psychology come into play for you personally when you're thinking about your audience and you're designing for an audience? I mean, I guess it depends on who the client is and who's hired you or, or who you're working for. Right. Yeah. So I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is that I find that if you go about your design process in a very human centered way and involve users, it reduces the amount that you have to think about psychology ahead of time. And I'm not saying you don't need to, but it lessens it because along the way you're getting like actual feedback and actually witnessing people interacting with your design, which yeah, it's very helpful and uh, reduces the, the need to like guess. However, I think that there's um, some areas where getting into the research and understanding how people digest information is helpful. And I'm sure there's more than this, but the thing that really comes to mind for me is like representations of uncertainty and how there's a lot of ways to present uncertainty and that are not easy for people to intuitively understand. But there are ways in which people are good at interpreting uncertainty. And so like, if we use those, then people will be good at reading it. Um, and so this is, this is an area where like, to me, not all the things are intuitive or things that I would have thought of, but like, there's been a lot of really great research by like Dr. Jessica Holman, um, Matthew Kay, uh, like I've seen them talk a couple of times and they have really awesome 
research uh, and presentations on that. Um, Alberto Cairo did an interesting article called those hurricane maps don't mean what you think they mean about um, you know how representing uncertainty with hurricane maps. So I think it's like, I think that's one area, especially where understanding how people ingest that information and like actually looking at the research that people are doing around it is super helpful. Absolutely. And out of all of your work, what data visualization projects are you most proud of? And you know, maybe you could talk us through one or two. I would say that uh, the Illinois Traffic Stops project that I did with the ACLU is the one I'm most proud of because it was part of an effort that led to like actual policy changes, which is really exciting. The background is that uh, Illinois um, had a law called, it's a bit of a mouthful, the Illinois Traffic and Pedestrian Stop Statistical Study Act, uh, which was an effort that, uh, it was an effort by Barack Obama uh, in 2003 when he was a senator there to address racial profiling in Illinois. And basically what it did is require all law enforcement officers in Illinois to collect and report data about traffic stops. Um, So when I say traffic stops, I'm talking about any time an officer pulls someone over. So this information they collected were things like uh, the driver's race, or rather it's their best guess at that driver's race, uh, reason for the stop, whether a search occurred and what kind of search, if contraband was found, and the outcome of the stop. So when I took on this project, uh, the act requiring that data collection was set to expire. And so this was part of a bigger effort uh, to push for that bill, push for a bill that would require the data to continue to be collected. Um, So in like 2018, I met Karen Sheely of the ACLU at a meetup. And ACLU wanted help with data analysis for a report. Um, they try to do a, a report on this particular data every year. And so they they wanted some help from data scientists on that. And I was excited to help and also got some uh, colleagues on board, uh, most notably Chris uh, Kucharczyk, who helped throughout the length of this project. My friend Alex Alievich also came on board and, and helped quite a bit. Uh, so it's the three of us. Um, so anyway, after working on this project a bit, I was like, hold on, like this project could benefit from really powerful with visualizations. Uh, So I suggested creating this website. Purpose of the site, uh, there was two. One was that, you know, to serve as a resource for public to learn about law enforcement practices. But the biggest reason um, was to provide a tool for law enforcement agencies to make informed improvements around racial disparities uh, for the good of their officers and the people they serve. So the site was not meant to be like a finger pointing device. It wasn't meant to be like, look how bad you are. It was meant to be like, oh, hey, maybe you didn't realize this. Um, And maybe you wanna think about if there's ways to help make this better at your agency, right? So it it was meant to be a helpful thing. So in creating the site, there was a few questions that we felt were really important to answer. So one was like, how do we visualize this data so that it conveys this pretty complex information in an understandable way? Um, how do we incorporate statistical significance into these visual representations so that we just felt that that was an important part of the story? Like without showing that, there's a lot missing. And um, you know, how do we create a website that both like tells a general story but also allows for data exploration and for digging into particular agencies? So if you go to the website, it's illinoistrafficstops.com. You 
see that the first, one of the first plots we show is a contraband plot. This plot is called the consent search hit rate comparisons for all Illinois law enforcement agencies. So what we're doing is we're looking at for each agency, when a person was searched, at what rate were, was contraband found? So illegal substances. So the reason we show this first is because there's this really common argument from people, which is that the reason that a police officer might search uh, a car with a driver of a particular race more often because historically they have seen that that minority group has contraband more often. This is an argument that is often made of like, oh, if people search black drivers, for example, in a certain agency five times more often, someone might say, well, maybe that's because historically they found they're more likely to have illegal things in their car. We thought that this, it was really important to first show this. And if you're looking at this plot, what you see is that for the most part, the majority of agencies do not show statistically significantly different rates for contraband discovery between minority and white drivers. In fact, the couple that do show statistically significantly different rates uh, are agencies in which minorities had significantly less rates of contraband. So we showed, like by looking at these first, we see that the contraband hit rate does not provide us with any evidence that an agency would be able to use uh, to search minority drivers more than white drivers. Uh, so that's the significance of showing that first. And so then after that, we kind of get into looking at search request rate comparisons. And uh, what you see here is that there are many agencies that ask for consent to search black and Latinx drivers significantly more than white drivers. And the reason we looked at like search request rate is because there's a few different reasons why you might search a driver, but the consent search, which requires them to ask consent, it's left as the subjective judgment of that officer. And even though people can say no, they often feel like they have to say yes. And so these subjective and unreviewed decisions uh, are the are the ones that raise concerns around racial bias, whether they're unconscious or conscious. Um, so yeah, and, the, and then the plot, we show a few other things, like we look at like dog sniff searches as well and uh, citations. But I think that those two kind of help to showcase uh, what we were looking at, which is that there are just simply some agencies in which uh, minority drivers are treated significantly differently um, and show some forms of racial bias. This had been visualized other places before, um, this kind of data, and they'd always been shown as a, like a dot plot with two axes. The, you know, the x-axis was often the percentage uh, for white drivers, and then the y-axis was often the percentage for a particular minority uh, set of minority drivers. But what this meant is that you were looking at this uh, plot where in order to understand if uh, you know, a certain subset of minority drivers were searched more than white drivers, you were looking at like, are they above this diagonal line? And it was actually kind of not very intuitive or easy to read. And it also just had more information than you actually cared about. And so what we tried to think about is like, what is the information that people actually care about here? And the information that people actually care about is 
how much more often are black drivers asked to search in this county than white drivers? Like, what is the comparison between uh, these two search rates? Uh, and because that is the thing that people really care about, we decided to do um, a single axis and just show that. It's a relative rate of how much more often were minority drivers requested to be searched or cited than white drivers. And obviously it was more for black drivers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> black drivers and Latinx drivers, yes. One more thing to add about that is that a bill was passed to make the collection of the ta traffic and pedestrian stop data permanent in Illinois. So that is one of the reasons why this project was something that I was particularly proud of because it was part of this effort that actually like led to policy changes. That's amazing. Yeah. And like, I guess that is why people do data viz, right? To make an impact maybe, or to change people's perceptions or to make maybe even improve people's lives. Yeah. That's, that's one of the reasons. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not always obviously, but, <laughs> um, but it seems like that's, like if people are thinking about getting into this field, that's a good motivation if you're, you know, if you care about these things. Um, now, you're one of the co-founders of the Data Visualization Society, as you mentioned earlier. Now, I wonder, in your opinion, how does this organization kind of intersect with data journalism? And, you know, should data journalists join? And do you have many data journalists, I wonder, if you know? Yeah, good question. So, uh First, I would say that the Data Visualization Society is meant to be a place where all data viz practitioners can intersect and connect. So this means data journalists, as well as data designers, data visualization engineers, data scientists, and basically anyone who uses visualization in their work, or maybe not in their work, but in side projects, or maybe it's just something they want to learn more about, right? So it's a place where all these people can intersect. Um, a big reason that we started the Data Visualization Society is we found that there were a lot of data visualization communities, but they were very disparate and separated. And um, we wanted to create one where people could connect uh, across those fields. Uh, so yeah, the short answer is yes, uh, it is a home for data journalists as well as many others. I don't know the exact like amount or proportions, um, but I know that there are quite a few. Now you are heading up the events at Data Visualization Society and you're also organizing Outlier this year, um, you know, your key conference. And I just wondered from your perspective, how has the creation of Outlier changed over the years? And maybe talk about the goals and the vision that you guys have in mind, and you know, compared to then and now. Yeah, the conference is happening February 4th and 5th. So very, very shortly. Um, the goals of Outlier from the beginning have always been to create a space where attendees can make connections, inspire others, and learn from others. Uh, and all the while kind of keeping accessibility and inclusion at the heart of these like planning decisions. So the first thing is making connections. I'm curious if you uh, feel this way too, which is that one of my favorite things about conferences is the ability to meet new people and make new connections and like new friends in the space. Totally. And, and that's what I really miss. I mean, I have met a lot of people from doing this podcast, obviously throughout COVID, but I really miss those face-to-face -face accidental connections and just getting out of your space and getting out of Zoom. And yeah, I mean, obviously we're kind of stuck online now, but there are still ways to do it though, aren't there? 
Yeah, yeah. So like at an in-person conference, you know, these happen supernaturally through like, oh, I sat down in a seat and I don't know my neighbor and we're going to chat before the talk starts or, you know, talking to people in between talks in the hallway or uh, evening events that people go to after. But like, you don't have that benefit for online. One of the biggest challenges with online conferences is that of enabling connections between attendees. Like we didn't want to create an online conference where you could get the exact same experience by just watching the videos later. Like, what is the point of that? Um, so we wanted people to be able to leave with like new connections and new friends. Um, so in addition to attendees being able to do things like chat in Slack, uh, we also facilitated meeting new folks via speed networking, uh, speed meeting networking sessions. And the thing that I'm most excited about is that we planned uh, unconference sessions and discussions. So I'm curious, have you ever been to an unconference? I haven't, no. <laughs> I don't know what that means. So typically an unconference and conference are separate things. Um, so an unconference, if you go to just a pure unconference, typically, not always, but typically sessions are not planned ahead of time. Um, and a lot of the ones I've been to, and the sessions are created by the attendees. So you literally show up uh, without an agenda, but you know there's gonna be you know, a bunch of other neat people there who are wanting to share stuff. Um, at the unconference, people add their sessions to a big board, like if it's, if it's in person, and then maybe there's 10 different sessions happening at the same time. And you're like, hmm, which thing do I wanna go to? That one sounds interesting, and you go to that. And so, they are created by the attendees who are there. So in the past, we've had uh, talks, workshops, discussions, panels, games, AMAs, and I even hosted virtual karaoke. And to, to kind of get back to you know this thing about like trying to find ways for people to connect, uh, this was the biggest success for, for me. And I think for a lot of people in the feedback, people love this, um, in creating a virtual conference where people could actually connect with one another through these discussions um, and yeah, kind of more informal conversations. Sounds exciting. I'm like, I'm definitely getting a ticket. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's the first one. So second goal is, you know, giving everyone a chance to inspire others. So in addition to a curated lineup, uh, we wanted to create a space where everyone had the opportunity to have a voice. And so this is where lightning talks and on unconference sessions came in. So with the lightning talks, uh, many people are able to share their expertise through five minute presentations. And we're currently accepting lightning talk submissions, by the way. So, so that's one thing. And then the other is the unconference portion, which you know enables anyone to create a session. And the ability to sign up for that is not open yet. It'll open, I think like the day before the conference, but we will have a post with more information about that going up soon. Amazing. And then a third big thing is, uh, I think many would say also that one of their biggest reasons for attending a conference is the ability to learn from other people and to be inspired. And, you know, we want attendees to leave feeling like they learned something new and with excitement about work that is being done by folks in the field. So we do our best to meet this goal by selecting just a super awesome um, panel of speakers. And we additionally feel that by meeting the goals that I've already discussed, 
that this also contributes to a more inspiring experience because by giving everyone a chance to host an uncom session or give a lightning talk, you might find inspiration from people you've never heard of or where you wouldn't expect it. Uh, so it provides even more opportunities for that. And the, the last big uh, thing is that while we're considering all these goals, there's kind of this like umbrella goal, which is to ensure accessibility and inclusion uh, at the conference. So from the start, we wanted to, uh, one of our primary goals was to find and amplify diverse global perspectives on data visualization. So uh, with speakers, um, outlier slogan is celebrating the global data visualization community. So we've worked really hard uh, both years to attract a diverse uh, panel of speakers spanning across all time zones and multiple languages. Um, and we dedicate a lot of time to creating an accessible environment where you know people feel included and represented and heard. And in order to do our best to encourage speakers to apply from across the uh, diverse data visualization community and to reach a global audience, uh, we did and are doing some of the following things. Um, one, uh, we posted the public call for speakers. We did not wanna do Outlier in a way where we were just asking people to speak. We thought that the call for speakers was super important because it makes the process accessible to newer or lesser known practitioners. Um, there are plenty of people on this year's lineup that I had never heard their name before and I'm so excited to see what they're gonna do. So this was like a really important part of that. Um, we also encourage first time speakers with a mentorship program. We don't want the fact that this might be someone's first talk or that they're a student or that they're new to stop them from sharing something amazing they're working on. Um, so we help set them up with a mentor if they request it. Uh, we also provide uh, support for speakers to present in whatever language is comfortable for them. Because again, we don't want language barriers or someone feeling uncomfortable speaking in English to stop them from sharing something really awesome. So uh, I think last year we had one non-English talk. I think this year we have two. Um, so that's something that we felt was important to support. For the non-English talks, we will put English subtitles um, on the video so that people can follow along. And then, yeah, a couple other things with speakers is uh, that we pay speakers for the work, which I, th I think might enable some people who maybe wouldn't have otherwise been able to spend the time, depending on their situation. Um, we schedule the talks around the clock, so they're 20-hour days, because that way, no matter where people live, there will be live content they can attend. And there yeah. will be, like, live unconfident like discussions and conversations. Um, we worked really hard to try to create like a fair speaker selection process that doesn't preference fame and ignores organizational affiliation and instead prizes originality of a talk and relevance to the audience and strives for a balance of perspectives. And then kind of also speaking to the global aspect. So as a, another thing um, that we did towards kind of this like inclusion and accessibility was uh, pricing. So we felt it was really important to create a pricing structure that's accessible, one, because we're trying to reach a global audience and it's simply not realistic to assume that the same pricing will work worldwide, that what we might ask for in the United States would work for all countries. It just wouldn't. Um, and then, you know, we also wanted to make sure like students could attend and additionally, like the pandemic led to plenty of people having a rough time in a rough year and we wanted those people to still be able to attend. So that's why we offer three different tiers of pricing uh, and it allows people to pay what they're able. There's like the middle pricing, that's what we recommend. And then there's like a cost conscious pricing and 
Uh, and then a higher price for people who want to support uh, and be able to support people who can't afford tickets. Um, and then we also uh, give an option for uh, free tickets uh, should people really need them. We, people can request a free ticket. So we didn't want cost to be a prohibitive thing. And no matter what ticket people got, it's the same experience. It's not like a tiered experience. Everyone has the same experience. And some of the lineup, like some of the talks are really interesting. Like, for instance, I saw one on uh, this should have been a bar chart. The joys yeah. and dangers of bespoke and unusual chart types. Like, yeah, that was that Robert Casero is going to be speaking mm -hmm. on that. Another one that I loved story literacy, a universal language for collaboration across disciplines by Sean Carey. Uh, and then applying racial equity, awareness, and data visualization, Jonathan Schwabish and Alice Fang. Jonathan's been on the podcast too. Um, and another one that I really loved that I really want to hear, how to make your data viz speak all languages, as we were talking about inclusivity. Anna Lucia, yeah. Bec Becky Rush, and Sean Wilmot. So those are like the ones, I don't know, I'm going to be very excited to listen to. I mean, all of it, they all look interesting, but like you were saying, it's a long day, 20 hours. We can't go to everything, but I, those are the ones I cherry pick that I'm like, yes, I am listening to those. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. And like I said, if, if things happen while you're sleeping and you want to go back, they will be posted. So you'll still have the opportunity to, to see them even before we like post them to the YouTube channel. Um, and then one other I'd point out, because I just think this is so cute is we have a talk, um, called Two Heads Are Better Than One, a collaborative data viz journey sparked by outliers. So these are two, the two speakers doing that talk met at Outlier last year and then started working together. And yeah, so I just, I think that's so lovely. That is one of the biggest indicators we think of a successful virtual conference is if we can enable that. Uh, so I'm just curious from you personally, since you are in the data world and you've been working in it for quite some time, well, important years, right, in data. Um, who do you admire most in the data design world? God, I, that's like so hard. Um, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of throw out some names that come immediately to mind, but I would also like to add the caveat that there are certainly going to be people missing from this list. Um, so Gabrielle Marit, uh, she's actually on the committee um, and the events committee and designed our event map. So you'll have that to look forward to. Um, but she's just creates really cool, unique stuff and kind of approaches things from very creative ways um, and unique ways. And like really puts the human back into like into data in a lot of her work. Um, Duncan Gear and uh, Miriam Quick, who was on your podcast recently, they've done some super cool stuff with data sonification. Um, and like they had a talk at Outlier last year, which was amazing. And also like, doing really cool stuff outside of data sonification. Uh, on the more like functional approach, thing, like Ian Johnson and Mike Freeman, uh, I used to work with them at Observable and not only are they awesome people and really good friends, but they, I admire like the elegant and functional ways that they tackle visualization problems. Um, Alberto Cairo is always inspiring. I love reading his books. Jared Thorpe, uh, he's speaking this year. I'm very excited for his talk and I love IO, which, he's, you know, a planner for. I'm excited it's happening again this year. Uh, and then this is more on the research side, but I know I mentioned them earlier, but like Jessica Holman and Matthew Kay, and like the people who are doing research on uncertainty, I just think it's so valuable. So those are some names that come to mind and I'm missing plenty of awesome people as well. <laughs> 
No, no, but that's very interesting. And like, also it gives people on this, who listen to this podcast, some names to follow if they haven't heard of them, because I don't know if data journalists are really, sometimes we're in our own bubble, you know, in, in the newsroom and other people in news who are doing cool things. So it's good to hear like what a data viz expert like yourself, who are you following, you know? And I just wonder, there seem to be so many different avenues for people to enhance their data skills and, and go in different directions in the data world. I wonder, how do you decide what's what's right for you? There's so many different directions you can go. Um, I think people can too easily fall into the sunk cost fallacy trap, where it's like, well, I've been spending X amount of time doing this, so I can't change careers now, because if I do, then I will have wasted that time. Um, I like to kind of view my own life and career trajectory in the same way that I approach projects, which is with like a very iterative approach. Um, So I don't look at career shifts or changes as like an indication of failure, which I think too often people do and they shouldn't. Um, Like instead I try to look at these uh, as like pivots where, okay, I've tried something out and I've learned something and now I'm going to iterate appropriately with my next move. And so I found that like my career shift is, or my career has involved a few shifts in it. Um, But I also find that these pivots get like smaller and smaller and more cute. And so I think my biggest advice for people who are trying to decide like, where do I wanna go within data? Like, where do I wanna specialize? um, Is just go forth with what excites you right now. Don't worry too much about like, well, what if in five years I want to do something else? That's fine. Like, that's okay. Like a transition will not only likely be possible, but you'll also have learned a ton of skills and that will almost certainly add value to whatever your next move would be that you can uh, use in other data spaces. Absolutely. Useful advice there. And also like, I can't believe you've only been working in the field since 2017 because you've done so many different things and you've jumped around in so many different ways, but you've built such an interesting skill set and portfolio while you've been doing all these different interesting things. And then you've also been doing stuff at Outlier. So it's like, yeah, you just don't want to cut yourself off. We're capable of doing lots of different things. Totally. I mean, like a good example of that is Outlier. Um, I actually took a few months off after Netflix. I was just kind of burned out. Like who wasn't last year, you know, pandemic took a toll and I decided to purposely not work for a few months. And I ended up working on Outlier full-time, not because, like, (laughs) this was, you know, I wasn't making money on it. I was doing this as a, like, with volunteer time. Um, But I just realized that it was a thing I wanted to do, and it's a thing I wanted to spend time on. And, uh, you know, I didn't have any, like, career objective or anything in mind. Um, But it was something that, like, excited me. And, like, I think that uh, you know, later, like I said, I moved into developer relations. So even though this was like a thing on the side that I wasn't being paid for, it still ties into my career path. And so like, I think sometimes it can be so easy to be like, well, I can't spend time on this thing because it doesn't have to do with like what I'm doing right now in my career. But it's, if it's something that's really exciting to you, it might tie in later. Yeah. And also you teach or you, I don't know if you still do, but you have taught and done lots of trainings for D3. And, you know, that's something that a lot of journal data journalists really want to learn, like in the newsroom. So then you don't have to hire a developer to come in and design something awesome. So I just wonder what advice do you have, you know, to approach learning this? Like what, 
apart from hiring yourself, of course, <laughs> but where, where do you start and how did you learn? Yeah. So the first learning resource I used, uh, to really build up like the building blocks was Scott Murray's book uh, called Interactive Data Visualization for the Web. Can't recommend it enough. Um, it's really helpful for understanding, like I said, like just the building blocks of D3. Uh, it might not necessarily go into all of the fancy things you can do because there's just like an unlimited amount of things you can do, uh, but it sets the stage really nicely for you. And then what I would recommend next is just like picking out a project that you'd be excited to do and to visualize and use D3 to do it. Um, and you'll likely keep learning through that process, but it's way easier to learn something when you have to do it in order to complete a goal or a task. So for example, the ACLU, um, the traffic stops project was not the first project I did or anything. I've done some before that, but it still was within, I don't know, the first year or so of me learning. It was, it was early-ish. And uh, there was still plenty of things that when I started, when I had decided, okay, we're going to do things this way. I'm like, I have no idea how I'm going to do that, but I, I'll figure it out. Right. So, um, and by having to figure it out, I learned how to do it. So I think that that is like one of the, the best ways. And then of course, there's just like a ton of resources out there, um, unobservable and online uh, to pull examples from. So if, if you want to do something super specific, you can not always, but often find an example of someone who's already done that and shared it. And then one other thing I would also add is that D3 is a super powerful tool and some data journalists use it super expertly. Um, there's some really cool examples out there. I would also add that not everyone needs to learn D3. Um, it's, you know, it, it is powerful. You can create super custom visualizations with it, super flexible, but not everyone needs that all the time. Um, and so if people wanna get more into data viz, but don't feel like they, need to learn something as advanced as D3, I would recommend giving Observable Plot a try. Uh, that was, so Mike Bostock created D3. Um, observable, Mike Bostock also created Observable Plot last year. And so the whole point of Observable Plot, you can use it anywhere where you use JavaScript. But you can create visualization super simply with like a line of code. And uh, even if in the end you wanna build out your final visit with D3, I would still recommend plot or something similar to it uh, for quickly answering questions about the data or prototyping your visualizations um, because D3 just simply isn't, it's, it takes too long to make things in D3. So it's not good at the exploration side of things. And I wonder what books and resources other than the ones you just mentioned have really helped shape your career in data design. Yeah, so definitely on the technical side of things is that Scott Murray book I talked about. And then another book that I think was super powerful for me, but is not about data viz and isn't even about data, really, um, is called Creative Confidence by uh, Tom and David Kelly. Tom Kelly also did The Art of Innovation, which is also super great. Yeah, Creative Confidence is one I, I read early. Um, and these books are not, like I said, they're not about data, but they're they're more focused on kind of the human-centered design side of things um, and have probably been the most influential books for me personally on just like how to approach problems in a way that you're going to really be thoughtful, um, keep the user in mind and be more likely to come out with like the more ideal outcome. And I just am curious, what's next for 
data visualization society and the stuff you guys are working on? Well, first of all, Outlier is in like two weeks. So hopefully see a bunch of you there. Um, uh, February 4th and 5th. Uh, some additional things. Um, uh, they're launch we're launching some topical interest groups for folks working on biz around particular areas of interest like health or climate. Also working on opening up some local community chapters. Uh, additionally, building out resource materials around learning and growing in data visualization, including learning pathways on targeted topics, creating career portraits on different career paths in the field, and a reorganization of the resource repository on the DVS website. Uh, this, I think, is like, to me, and I think this was also one of Amy's big motivations when we started, is that an organization like this can be super helpful for people who are starting out and like want to find resources. Because I remember when I started out, I didn't know what to do, where to find things. Like it just, it, it, it didn't seem very clear to me. So um, this is like a goal that's always kind of been there and that we're just always trying to like keep working towards is like help with better resources. And then additionally, continuing and scaling just programs that we've already built out um, over the first three years. And another exciting thing is that the first issue of Nightingale Print so a physical copy uh, will be shipping out soon. So I'm pretty excited to have one of those on my bookshelf. Marvelous. Oh, well, Molly Pettit, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, listening to you and hearing all your ideas and perspectives and all the work you're doing for Outliers. So thank you so much uh, for joining us today on Conversations with Data. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. And you can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.